This is Sports Jam. I'm Doug Doyle. My guest today is a very special one for many reasons. John D. Lucas is the author of the new book, Beano Cook. Haven't they suffered enough? An unbelievable career in sports, PR, and television. John D. Lucas, I love this book. It's incredible, and it's great to finally have you on Sports Jam. It's great to finally be here, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. I want to talk about the Lucas and Doyle families. They've been great friends over the years. And John D. was especially kind to my late dad. And for that reason, I'm wearing dad's jacket, Notre Dame jacket, and as well as his ring and a couple of the, the pennants that, that he has had because he was uh, very close to you and your family. Dad Spike passed away in 2020 and you lost your dad as well. So you know what that feels like. And how difficult that situation is. But John D. is a 1999 graduate of the University of Notre Dame and was a writer for the Blue and Gold Illustrated. He's revered by several members of my family, including my brother, Don. We just talked about you over the weekend. He was glad that you're going to be on the show. Cousin Joe Havranek, also thrilled that, that you're on the show. And I never really got to know your dad really well, but uh, have respected your uncle, Reege, for a long time. He was a coach at Franklin Regional and as you know, I played basketball there, so did Don, so did Dad, and so did you. You played basketball at Franklin Regional High School as well. My brother Don and I were talking about you were pretty good. Uh, I was I was okay. Hey, not as good as Pat was. You know, I played on the team with him. And uh yeah, we had we had a couple good teams there. We had a lot of fun. So that was, you know, hey, even before that, uh, you know, Donnie coached uh coached me when I got started, you know, maybe fifth grade, something like that, you know, uh real young kids. So it was, yeah, we, we go pretty far back, all of us. You mentioned my nephew, Pat, he had broken some school records for a while uh, in the basketball program at Franklin Regional. And it's interesting because you're a graduate of Notre Dame. And as you can tell, I have all the memorabilia behind me, but the person that you became so close to was kind of anti-Notre Dame and pro-Pitt. So it's really interesting that you develop this relationship with Bino Cook. Now, John is not just a writer, but an historian, a filmmaker. His byline has appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, World War II Magazine, and on ESPN.com. He is also the author of Escape from Duval, the forgotten story of the most daring prison break of Pacific War. History is really inside you as well, isn't it? Definitely. Well, my, my dad was a high school teacher, so, you know, you, you can't get away from it that way. You know, a lot of kids would you know, we'd go to, uh, you know, go to the beach for summer vacation or an amusement park somewhere, something like that. We went to Civil War battlefields. That's, you know, my dad's big thing. And, uh, and it just, it just, you know, grew on me from there. And I, I continued it. What I love about this book from John D. Lucas is the fact that if you're my age or you were watching sports at any time during the 70s, 80s, 90s, wherever it is, all these names are in this book are people who shape the sports world either by playing it, broadcasting it, or writing about it. And they're all in this book. The late Bino Cook was a sports media icon, an original character for sure, known for his wit and one-liners. You see, John is already laughing because it brings back all the memories and an encyclopedia knowledge of college football history. The 142nd season of college football is here. Enjoy it. And next January 10th, when number one plays number two, and maybe they would have met in a bowl game, but it's unlikely. 
the way the old system was. Thank the BCS. They gave us number one against number two. And that's all they promised. He died in 2012, though. And before he passed, he established a really amazing bond with John D. Lucas. He called him a surrogate son. <laughs> and it started with a simple letter to Bino. You reach out to him early in your career. Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, I mean, it was actually before I had a career. I was a senior in high school at, at Franklin Regional. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things I'm, you know, sitting around trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life? Am I, you know, go to school? What, I, what kind of field do I want to get into? And, uh, and, you know, somewhere along the line, the, you know, the thoughts started, you know, there was a seed germinating in my head. I wanted to get into sports writing or, you know, media in, in some shape, way, shape or form. And I always liked watching Bino on TV because he was, you know, he provided a, a different perspective than than most of the announcers, you know, the former players, things like that, you know, and he had, he had a funny line every once in a while, he came up with a great stat or some historical tidbit. He would tie things into world war II somehow, or, you know, even current events in some way, shape or form. And, you know, so I figured, you know, I'm going to write him a letter guys from Pittsburgh. I, you know, did some research about him. I'm thinking maybe he would, you know, help out a, you know, a Western Pennsylvania, you know, fellow neighbor. And so I wrote him a letter and I was surprised a couple of weeks later, uh, I got one back in the mail and he told me, you know, to call him on such and such a date, you know, at this time and, you know, gave me his home phone number. And I'm, you know, I'm 18 years old, getting ready to graduate here in a couple of months and I'm blown away. So I, well, of course, called him back on the phone and we had a long conversation and I kind of, in the introduction of the book, I, I detail it, you know, I, I go into, uh, you know, some specifics talking about, you know, what we discussed. And from that point on, I mean, I had no idea that it was, you know, the start of a friendship, but it was also the start of a, you know, a business relationship and a, and a partnership. And, you know, a couple of years later, here he is, he's asking me to help him write his memoirs. So it's, it's one of those strange things that you take that shot into the dark and it really, you know, something big happens because of it. Sometimes we say sports is a game of inches. Life is a game of seconds at times. And for John D. Lucas, you almost hung up because he didn't answer the phone right away. Right. Well, there's there's a famous you know saying that uh, Bino always said: if I don't if I don't answer the phone, if you call and I don't answer, uh, I'm you know I'm either not home or I'm dead. And because he he refused to get an answering machine, there was no personal assistant, no voicemail, none of this stuff. He had no cell phone, so it was just you know a landline. He was you know you called him up, and it was. Uh, it was hit or miss. And that's, that's the way everybody I later found out everybody, you know, in the sports world and, you know, whatever type of, uh, you know, enterprise you're in, whatever you tried to hook up with Bino, that's, you just rolled the dice and that, that was the way it was. And, uh, luckily I had enough patience that I, I let it ring, you know, a few more times than I probably would have for anybody else. And he answered and the rest is history. For Bino Cook, life was one giant quip. Well, it's Earth Day in New York, all over the world, and when you want pollution, it's up here in the gallery. Born Carol Hoffcook, he was given his nickname when he moved at age seven to Pittsburgh from Boston and became known as Bino for Beantown. A graduate of the University of Pittsburgh, he began his sports career in 1956 as the school's sports information director. After nearly three decades as a sports writer and public relations professional, Vino joined ABC Sports in 1982 as a college football commentator. 
for all the joy and the laughter you brought our lives. Thank you, Bino. There will never be another. The name Bino, you talk about it in the book. His real name was Carol. And one thing we can all agree on, I don't think Carol Cook would have really had the ring. And he admits, he, he admits that even though his mother hated Beans and Bino because he was from the Boston area and got nicknamed that in, in Pittsburgh, that it worked for him. And he, he mentions Rocky Blyer, I have the jersey back, how the, how the Rock certainly uh, benefited and it wouldn't have been better than Robert Blyer running uh, back for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish and for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So whether you agree with everything Bino has to say, he was a controversial guy at times and would speak his mind. There are so many truths in this book and uh, really sets the tone for today's journalism, I think so, too. John, when you look at how this man shaped the sports world and the television sports world, I think one thing is clear. You mentioned that he would speak his mind. All we see now are commentators all over television. That's all it is, is sports commentary. Right. You know what? It's strange because if you, you look back on it, you know, when Rune Arledge, who was, you know, the president of ABC Sports, later became president of ABC News, one of the most important figures in the history of, of, of television, the entire medium. You know, when he hired Bino, he was hiring kind of the world's biggest college football fan. And he was letting this guy who would, you know, be sitting at the White Valley Club or someplace like that talking about college football. He put him in front of the camera and let him do his thing on, a, you know, a national audience. And I think that every person that has some type of job, you know, in this field today, you know, especially someone who came up through a non-traditional way, you know, nowadays there's blogs, there's podcasts, and, you know, there's, there's social media, there's all many different kinds of ways to sort of get your message out, you know, out there. Bino was the very first person to do that. He was, you know, it was him, Howard Cosell, Jimmy the Greek. And, you know, you can probably throw Phyllis George in there as well, since, you know, since she was a woman that didn't have any traditional journalism background or training. They didn't go to school for it. Uh, you know, they weren't necessarily seen as, you know, TV material, but they, they broke those barriers. And Bino was one of those individuals. And I think it was his brashness, his ability to, you know, to, to, to come up with a funny line, but also speaking his mind, just like you said, that that sort of enabled him to, to get to where he to where he did. And it's, you know, the, the reason that there's a, you know, there's a book about him today. He even mentioned that, you know, if, you know, he had a, he had a great career in PR. He was SID at Pitt for, you know, for a decade. Uh, he worked at ABC and CBS. And, you know, he, he was he was well known inside, you know, the television PR industry as this great publicist. But he even mentions in a book, he said, you wouldn't be reading this if Rune Arledge wouldn't have put me on TV. So he understands, you know, the importance of literally getting your voice out there and your face out there to to the masses. And, you know, he was he was a big uh, beneficiary of all that. But he was also a trailblazer. He was a pioneer in that regard. He mentions his time with Howard Cosell, you know, one of the most famous broadcasters of all time and was there. Uh, with ABC, but even Dr. Jonas Salk gets a mention in Bino Cook, your book, John D. Lucas. It, it's amazing uh, how many people that he knew. He knew the chief, the great owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Art Rooney, knew him extremely well. But if you go to page 179 in Bino Cook, you'll get a real sense of how he felt about journalism and the industry. And uh, I'm going to ask John D. Lucas to read a portion of that for us. 
I'm definitely, I'm definitely want to read a portion of that. But I think that the Bino, he had a great, uh, he had a great feel for you know journalism, the way things were, the way things they were going, the way things are now. It's strange. There's a lot of predictions in the book, but I think this part of the the section really sort of you know drives it home because he was, if you think about, it, he was around for he knew guys who were you know in that 1920s era of of sports writing, uh, you know all the way up to 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 the internet age to websites, and so I think he was a pretty uh, a pretty good individual that you could use as a you know as a sort of a mile marker in terms of where we are, where we're heading, things like that. But uh, I'll yeah, read a section of the book. It's from chapter five called Nothing But U-Boat Commanders. Those who know me well know that in addition to the clipboard, I'm usually carrying at least one newspaper with me at any given time. 70 years on, it's a love affair that's still going strong. At my age, a whiff of Chanel number no. five is not guaranteed to turn my head, but the smell of fresh newsprint still has a hold over me. Perhaps above all else, I enjoy the physical act of reading the paper, the crinkling sound when you turn the pages, getting the ink on your hands. I still subscribe to maybe a half dozen papers. I might be the last person in America who does. It bothers me that newspapers are dying. Part of the problem is technology. Young people prefer the internet. I understand that. Another big part of it, at least in my opinion, is that storytelling is a lost art. Nobody appreciates long form writing anymore, so nobody writes it or publishes it anymore. Everything in print has been re- reduced to nuggets, just like how the soundbite took over and eventually ruined television. So newspapers are basically an antiquated form of television. People don't have any patience. Everyone's in a hurry. As a result, they don't sit down to read and exercise their minds anymore. The same reason we'll never see another Charles Corrault on TV is the same reason we'll ne- never read another Red Smith in the sports pages. Maybe it's not that nobody cares what they have to say. It's that nobody can sit still long enough to listen to or read what they're saying. Once upon a time, you could put a sports story in front of me, cover up the byline, and I could tell who the writer was just by reading the lead. This was any paper in any city in the country. Nowadays, with the exception of some of the Pittsburgh writers, I can't tell one writer from another. To me, their work all reads the same. It's cookie-cutter commentary. That says so much, and it's so relevant today. Right, because he wrote that. Remember, he died in 2012. Uh, it's more than ever so relevant about the lost art of storytelling and the newspaper business now, and how it's changed dramatically to being online for the for the most part. But still, there are so many people that still want to touch it. Right, they feel just like Bino. They still want to touch it and and read it. He mentions so many people that have already been guests, John, on Sports Jam, including. You know, Rocky Blyer, and he talks about Terry Brennan, the old coach. Well, I spoke with Terry Brennan Jr. right before his dad passed away. He came out with a book that we talked about, and he he, he mentioned so many people that have been uh, on this show that it was so exciting to read your book about that. And also on the show was one of the guests that we had on Sports Jam was Jerry Eisenberg, John. Definitely. That was one of Bino's uh, good friends. Uh, you know, when Bino started his own uh, weekly sports magazine, uh, it was a tabloid in 1963. Eisenberg was one of the first guys he went after to get, you know, to write for him. Bino, though, to you was so much more than a mentor. And from driving up to Western Pennsylvania and going up into Evansburg and all those trips on the uh, on that trip on Route 22 East and right. however you were traveling, you learned so much ab- about him. He was a lot of fun, though, wasn't he? He was He was a ton of fun. I mean, there was, 
you know, towards the end, you know, I think when he was, he kind of ran out of gas. I knew he was, you know, he was on his way out. His, he was really disgusted with his health situation and things. But other than that, every time I talked to him, you know, even if it's just on the phone for a couple minutes, you know, he always made you laugh somehow. He was always, you know, very uplifting, uh, you know, funny. He was, I mean, I call him, he was kind of the, uh, like the Cosmo Kramer of, of sports media. You know, if you watch Seinfeld, he just, he, he was always up to something, always had something going on, whether it's his apartment building or, you know, at the hot dog shop downstairs where he hung out or other people he was involved in. He always had a good story. And, you know what I mean? He was always, he was good for a laugh and you could, you could call him up even if you were down in the dumps or something like that. And probably wasn't even his intention. That was just the way he was, you know, he would, he would come up with something and, you know, you, those drives were a perfect illustration. I mean, it was, you know, I would pick him up, uh, you know, where we, you know, live outside, just outside of Pittsburgh, you know, drive into the city, pick him up. He lived right on Liberty Avenue downtown. And then we'd go to state college or something like that. And, you know, you're thinking that would be a two and a half, three hour ride. It was over in, it felt like three minutes instead, you know, because we're, we're having all these off the wall conversations and you're, you know, there's, there's times where you're not paying attention. You have to, you know, make a turn or something like that, but because, you know, you're thinking about what he's saying and we're trying to come up with these, you know, lists of, you know, famous things that happen. And, you know, it's just, it's one thing after the other. And, you know, he was just very, you know, he had a very eclectic taste and interests and he could talk about anything. So that was another part of it. He was, uh, you know, I don't know anybody else who had that type of a memory or that type of, you know, uh, just a warehouse of knowledge that he could bring it out at a moment's notice. And it just, you know, he made life fun. Is that one of the things that you took from him, his amazing storytelling ability when you're writing your books? I, I think so. You know, when I when I first got to know him and again, we talk about this, there's you know a brief introduction I wrote that's in you know my voice from my point of view. The rest of the book is told from his point of view, you know, and he, he, he told me, you know, that you have to be a storyteller. It's you know, it, everything should have a lyrical quality to it. The transitions need to work. And but the guy himself, he couldn't write worth a lick. And he admitted that. And that's why he sort of brought me on, you know, to, to do this for him. Uh you know, in, but he understood, you know, it was kind of like we make, I think we make the analogy, you know, he was a guy that, uh, you know, he, he couldn't play baseball himself, but he was an incredible scout. He knew, you know, he knew people who could write, you know, and he tried to get people, you know, jobs all over the place for that. So he was, he, he knew what it take, what it took to be a storyteller. And he, you know, communicated that to me. Obviously, I mean, yeah, I was born with something, you know, a little bit else that gave me some of that, you know, ability. But, you know, if it wasn't for him, he was able to sort of identify and refine it and uh, he would help me out. I mean, I started sending him stuff, you know, when I was when I was 18 that I was writing and uh, and I still did right until he died. You know, I would run certain things by him or, you know, he would get an early draft of something I was working on. And he would, you know, almost like a school teacher, he would send it back with his comments, you know, or later years when he didn't feel like writing anything, he'd call, you know, and, you know, change this or do that. And that's just, you know, the very helpful kind of individual he was. So I'm glad I had that, you know, that mind of knowledge and, you know, ability that I could, that I could turn to when I needed it. You're listening to Sports Jam. My guest is author, historian, and sports writer, John D. Lucas. His new book is about his great friend and mentor, the late Beano Cook, who indeed was a loyal son of the University of Pittsburgh, hailed to Beano. His memoir, Haven't They Suffered Enough? An Unbelievable Career in Sports, PR, and Television, 
Star Ledger sports writer and legendary author Jerry Eisenberg was also a great friend of Bino's and says, as you'll read and haven't they suffered enough, Bino Cook was the most innovative, imaginative mind in sports. If there were no Bino, Damon Runyon would have had to come back and invent him. He was an institution. Bino Cook selected John D. Lucas to write his memoir. Let's find out more about the author. You lost Bino and you lost your real dad pretty early in your in your life. How has that impacted you? Yeah, my, uh, my dad died in 2005, pancreatic cancer. And he was, you know, uh, <laughs> you talk about Notre Dame fan. It was, there were two people, you know, my dad and your dad were the two people that got me hooked on, on the fighting Irish from, a, you know, from an early, uh, uh, you know, from an early age. So that was one of those things. And, you know, those people are just, they're around you forever. You know, it's, it's tough. I mean, your dad's been gone, what, two years now. And it's, you know, you, you think about him every day. That's the same way, you know, that I am, you know, with my dad. And I know that, uh, you know, he would, he would probably like what I'm doing now. He'd, he'd, you know, really appreciate reading this stuff. Like you said, all these stories and things were names that he knew and grew up with and, you know, had an attachment to as well. So I think that, uh, you know, but he, he got me started on this path, you know, and helped me, uh, you know, become the person I am, the writer I am, you know, he sent me to Notre Dame, got me through there. So that was, you know, a, a big part of it. And I, you know, miss him terribly, but, uh, you know, like him and Bino, I, I'm, you know, pretty sure they're, they're both watching down and, you know, helping guide me. Behind you is a sign that says, write like a champion today, right? Correct. Obviously a, a takeoff of play like a champion that hangs in the Notre Dame uh, tunnel as they get ready for the, all their games. Your experience at Notre Dame, um, you, you covered, you know, one of the, the greatest tradition schools ever. What was it like for you writing for Blue and Gold Illustrated and be a, a member of the uh, the whole fighting Irish community as a student there. It, it was amazing, Doug. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, I think people, you know, you, you can watch the games on Saturday, you can watch the movie Rudy, and that gives you a little bit of the idea, the, the sense of community that, you know, that, that Notre Dame fans and alums have. But that's only just a small, you know, fraction of it. It's obviously, you know, it's an incredible school, great place to go to school. Whereas Bino would say, though, you know, it's not the best. You know, he was... Whenever people would, you know, get on him about the academics and everything, he would, he would say, well, hey, if, you know, if it was the best, Joe Kennedy would have sent his kids there, you know, not Harvard. He, you know, he had a rivalry with Notre Dame, which we get into in the book, and it's kind of funny. I kind of converted him, I think, towards the end. Not wasn't a full conversion, but he, uh, he was rooting for them a little bit more than he probably would have, you know, except when they played big. But uh, no, other than that, it was great. And you know, writing for Blue and Gold, I mean, that was, uh, that was. A, unbelievably, you know, great formative experience for me. It was, uh, I mentioned that in the book too, because I, you know, went to your alma mater for a year, transferred, you know, going from Penn State to Notre Dame. It was, it was kind of funny. I actually, you know, I wrote for the Daily Collegian at Penn State for a while, which was, you know, one of the best student newspapers in, you know, in the whole country. And then I went out to South Bend and, you know, couldn't get on anywhere out there. Bino calls people up from Blue and Gold Illustrated and says, hey, I got this guy, he can write, they'll do a great job. And they sort of, they hired me sight unseen just on his recommendation. And so that was great. I mean, I was, you know, 19 years old getting paid to write about Notre Dame and go to, you know, go to home games, away games, things like that. So that was, you know, incredible. Plus you get to meet all these other people, you know, ESPN, people from the New York Times and Newsday and Sports Illustrated, uh, you know, and just all these, you know, big time publications. So it's, you know, it's not just the academic part of it and, or just even the fun of going to football games. It's, you know, there's that networking aspect of it. 
And that was another thing that, you know, Bino had a major, major impact on in my life. Would he have done as well in today's world? That's, that's a really good question. I think, you know, there's, he, he addressed that a little bit in, uh, you know, towards the end of the book. He, you know, he mentions that nowadays the way, you know, things are, he said that, uh, you know, that him, uh, Cosell, Peralt, they wouldn't get past the receptionist if they were brought in for an interview at any, any of the networks today. And I think that, uh, you know, there's something to be said. There's a lot more, you know, things are a lot more combative in terms of what they, they want you to do on TV and radio and things like that. And it's, uh, he probably wouldn't have lasted in that type of atmosphere, but yet he was competitive enough in his, in his own mind. I think he would have, you know, he, he probably could have made it work one way or the other once he got his, his foot in the door. He had, he had a way of doing things in terms of, uh, you know, he was a people person, to be honest. And I know he could rub a lot of people the wrong way. That was another part of it. He could be stubborn and, you know, and very focused on certain things. But he, uh, he was able to, to meet the right individuals who got him, you know, where he needed to be. And like he says in the book, you know, he was very fortunate that even though there were things that didn't exactly go his way or jobs that he wanted that didn't get, for the most part, things worked out for him. So you already mentioned Rune Arledge and he was, Rune Arledge was, you know, a monster in our business and he really liked Bino Cook and, you know, open doors for him. But much of this book to me is about promises kept, you right. know, because you had a promise that you wanted to make sure that this book got out. You weren't real happy with all the obits that came out about Bino when he passed away, but he also had promises and he also had advice from people like Bob Prince, the gunner, the, the legendary Pittsburgh Pirates announcer. So this is a, it's a theme that runs through your book about promises kept, right? Definitely. Uh, that was very big to Bino. He was uh, not one of those people who forgot favors, who forgot requests, things like that. You know, he, uh, to be honest, I mean, you mentioned Bob Prince. I mean, I, I was too young. I never knew Bob Prince, never met him. You know, I obviously know the name. I know the voice. And I've heard so many different stories. You know, it's incredible that, uh, that I have a sort of a connection with him, even though neither, neither of us met each other. Uh, he was Bino's mentor when, when Bino was, was a younger guy right around the same age. And uh, he took Bino under his wing, uh, literally dragged him all over town, you know, into press boxes, bars, everywhere they went. And, uh, you know, taught Bino sort of not just about the business, but about life in general. And uh, Bino did this very same thing for me. And it wasn't until many years later when we were writing this book that he told me that, uh, you know, he wanted to take, you know, Prince out to dinner one time, buy him some drinks or, you know, do something nice for him. And Prince says, no, he says, let's, you know, I got to tell you something. He said, one of these days, some young kid is going to find you like you found me, take care of him. And so that was, you know, Bino's way of paying it forward, so to speak. And so that was, you know, you know, that was the way Bino operated. That gives you a great idea of his, of his personality and, you know, the way he, the way he thought and the way he behaved. And so, you know, part of me picking up on that, was, you know, that I had to get this finished for, you know, for him. There was, uh, I think he had some unfinished business. Maybe there were some things in this book that he didn't want to say while he was still around or some <laughs> people he didn't want to talk about and, you know, have any repercussions from that, which I understand. Uh, but a lot of it was, I think that, uh, you know, he had all, a lot of these great stories. He had these opinions. Like you said, he's very opinionated, and, you know, and, uh, you know, he was never afraid to, to speak his mind. And I think a lot of that, you know, comes out in this book. So it is sort of a... Uh, you know, a, a, a promises 
kept and promises made uh, type endeavor. That whole gruff delivery from him, but it comes through in you, you know, when, when we hear him talking in your book and those one-liners are, are fabulous. He was so funny and, and really, you know, in tune with what, what was going on, by the way, I know you were too young to, to hear Bob Prince, but I, I still, you know, mimic Prince through the years, you know, Roberto Clemente comes up to the plane and, uh, and then he'd be all of a sudden you'd hear the crowd and they go, and Clemente gets a double. Now, I want to tell you about Sister Mary Edgerly and her pies that she did. And then all of a sudden you hear the crowd go, shh. And Starjo right. hits a home run. And it's like, wait a minute. What, what just happened there? Later in his, in his career, he would tell all these stories. He was right. a storyteller, too. He told right. it in between batters. You know, with a bug on the rug, Sankey pulls in with a double. Everybody in our bullpen is standing and walking around nervously. They want to run and grab Doc. Two balls and a strike. Now the pitch. Swing and a miss, strike two. Good heart-breaking pitch. Two balls, two strikes, two out. Doc Ellis looking out at the scoreboard. He can see zero, zero, zero where it says San Diego. Two men away in the bottom of the ninth. Now two balls, two strikes, and here's the pitch. Strike three. They're going after him. He got it. They're mouthing Doc Ellis on a no-hitter. I could see how that storytelling went from Bob Prince to Bino Cook so well, and, and, and it worked perfectly for both of them and, and true Hall of Famers in their own respective fields when it comes to things. As you see, I have a Brian Russ jersey. He went to Notre Dame, of course, plays right. for the Penguins and uh, the whole Pittsburgh connection for you. He's got a new contract, too, I think. He uh, six-year six year deal, so we get, get a domer to keep in town for a little bit longer. <laughs> Excellent. And, and he's such a clutch player too. And I know that for you, you know, when you, when you wrote this book, you had a chance, at least in the beginning of the book, as you mentioned, it's in your voice. And I think that was so crucial to talk about your relationship with this man. It was, it was really moving, John. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, I mean, here's a guy that uh, like we mentioned, you know, before the letter, 1995, doesn't know me from, from Adam, you know, from a stranger on the street and writes back and gives me his home phone number and, you know, things just develop from there. I don't, I don't know if that could happen nowadays. I don't, you know what I mean? You can, you can find some things out. You can reach out to some people. And I don't know if, you know, how many people would, would take the time to, to, to get back to somebody nowadays. But I think, again, that was, Again, that really illustrated what Bino's personality was like. And, uh, I mean, him and I were obviously very close. I mean, we got along well. Even, you know, I went to visit him in the hospital, you know, how many times. And, and it was funny because there would there'd be instances where, you know, he would say, don't, don't come down and visit me. I don't feel well. I'm not doing well, things like that. And, and I would show up anyhow. And he would be mad for about five seconds and then, you know, sit down. He'd be happy that someone came to visit him. You know what I mean? That, that I didn't listen to what he, you know, <laughs> you know, I didn't take his order seriously. So I think that there was, you know, that, you know, he, he thought the same way about me as, as I did with him. And it was, and it was great. And, and I know that, you know, he didn't have much of a family. You know, we're, we're all from, you know, decently sized, large families. And, uh, but he didn't have anybody else. You know, his, he was very close with his mother and she passed away. She lived to be, I think, 97, we mentioned in the book. And then after that, you know, he lived by himself and, you know, there weren't a lot of, you know, he had, he had a lot of friends and a lot of work interactions, but no one else to really sit around and, you know, BS with. But we, we, we did that a lot. We would go and, uh, 
you know, he would get these gift certificates, you know, for the radio shows and all the appearances he did. And, you know, it was great because we'd go to Ruth's Chris or Morton's in Pittsburgh, you know, and this is, you know, great steaks, expensive dinners and things. And, and we'd sit there and we'd get a table in the back and just, you know, just talk and, you know, he'd tell random stories. And it wasn't always about things for the book. You know, it wasn't always for work-related subjects. It was, uh, you know, it was just two people talking about life and things like that. So we had a, we had a very, very close relationship and, and I'm glad that we were able to, you know, work together well enough that we, you know, we put this whole thing out there. I, and I don't, again, he, he tried with a bunch of other people. I'm not saying that I'm, you know, Hemingway or William Manchester or anyone of that type of talent, but I think our, 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 our shared interests and, you know, the way we both enjoy telling stories and things like that, it just, it meshed, it worked out. It was, you know, we, he mentions the one line in the book and I thought that was great because I've always loved Casablanca too, you know, and when, uh, uh, you know, Bogey and, uh, you know, the French chief of police, you know, they're walking, you know, walking away to join the free French garrison. And he says, you know, it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And that's, that's exactly what it was. And he was a great judge of talent. And thus uh, you worked right into that for him. He, he knew that. He was a bachelor for life, as uh, you mentioned. Also a Frank Sinatra fan, for those of you that are listening on WBGO right now. He was a big fan of Old Blue Eyes. Before we let you go, we just got a couple of minutes left here, John. Uh, you want to tell us about uh, any projects that you're working on? Uh, yeah, I'm actually, you mentioned my first book was Escape from Deval, and that's the, the true story of the only group, large-scale group of American prisoners to escape from the Japanese in the Pacific Theater during World War II. And I'm going back into that uh, that realm with a, uh, a book. And it's, you know, Bina would like it because it's part college football, part part World War II and history. Uh, one of the guys who, who helped lead that escape was a, uh, he retired as a Marine general, but he played football at Tennessee for Robert Neyland in the 1930s. And uh, and I have a copy of his diary that uh, that he kept throughout his captivity during, you know, the early part of World War II in the Philippines when he was, you know, a prisoner of war. When he escaped, he came back to the States and he ended up uh, going back into the fight. He was wounded in the Battle of Peleliu. So it's kind of a fascinating story to see, you know, a diary that was, that was kept through all these historic events. Plus, you know, it was kind of a danger aspect to it too, because the Japanese didn't want you to <laughs> keep a diary. If you, if you were caught with one, you were executed. So, you know, it's one of those things where the only people who's really seen it has been myself, you know, in research for my first book and his family. So hopefully a lot of people out there will be happy to, you know, get this sort of behind the scenes peek at, you know, World War II as it ran, kind of like I did a behind the scenes peek of, sports and you know and television and uh, sports media with Dino you have all the uh the passions that I do sports history and it certainly comes through John D Lucas's new book is Bino Cook haven't they suffered enough an unbelievable career in sports PR and television and check out his first book as well Escape from Deval the forgotten story of the most daring prison break of the Pacific War I must admit, it's been a little emotional for me to have you on the show. Thanks. Hey, thank you very much, Doug. I really enjoy, and I'm, I'm glad we set this up. And I'll, I'll tell Cousin Joe next time I see him that he, uh, he deserves part of the credit for, for setting it up. And I will say, channeling for Spike, job well done, John. Thank you very much, Doug. Thanks again. Go Irish. Spike. 
Sports Jam is a WBGO Studios production. You can check out all my past shows by going to wbgo.org slash sportsjam. Find Sports Jam with Doug Doyle on the NPR list of podcasts or wherever you hear podcasts. Until our next Sports Jam session, I'll see you at the game. Thank you.